Yes, hello. My name is Craig Storty. I'm uh, honored today to be interviewed by Chris Smith on his podcast to talk about the issues of cross-cultural communication and cross-cultural understanding, and I look forward to talking with Chris. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Chris Smith, and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode 117. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, it's an excellent moment to do that right now. All right, the guest for this episode is Greg Storty. He's Director of Communication Across Cultures and the author of no less than eight books in the field of intercultural communications, including his latest book, which we'll talk about, Why Travel Matters. He trains and consults with Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, the military, and academic institutions. It's a very um, uh, upbeat talk. We talk about basically we're colleagues amongst uh, amongst each other, and um, it's um, uh, well, I found it a very enjoyable talk, and I hope you will as well. So let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning, Craig, uh, or good afternoon, or maybe good evening. I have no idea to be honest. Um, how are you? I'm fine, Chris. It's morning here, actually, not uh, not quite afternoon yet. Okay, it's morning there, and it is afternoon here. And we are recording this on a, on a March 4th, and my local time is 16.24 or 4.24 p.m. Now, you said it's morning, so tell us a little bit about, uh, this is your introduction moment, tell us a little bit about yourself, Greg, um, where do you come from, where are you now, and what would you consider being your so-called cultural frame of reference? Yes, thank you. Um, I come from the U.S., uh-huh. uh, originally from New England, which is um, of the state of Vermont, which is in the far northeast corner of the U.S., mm-hmm. and now I live in near Baltimore, and I'm doing this um, this podcast from near my home, where we have six inches of snow on the ground this morning. Oh, um, my framework, I've worked with both U.S. and international clients, uh-huh. uh, largely in the business sector, but also government. Uh, academia and the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess my cultural framework is certainly my cultural background is deeply American. Mm-hmm. I've tried over the years to understand other perspectives. Many of my clients are U.S. folks who need to understand and work more effectively with folks in other cultures. Mm-hmm. But I do have a number of clients in Europe, actually, also in India, who they need to understand U.S. culture better. So usually, Chris. There's, there's an element of American cultural framework in most of what I do, whether it's for my U.S. clients who need to work better internationally or for the international clients who need to understand Americans better. Right. Okay. That makes, that makes good sense. When you say um, uh, deeply American, I've never said, heard an American say that. Uh, 
<laughs> what do you consider that being? What is deeply American? <laughs> well, I guess I mean that my formative years, actually just up until age 21, were, were all in the U.S. Uh, I may have traveled to Canada once, but I, I think I might have been too young to remember it. So my my cultural conditioning, at least up to age 21, which I think does influence a person deeply, was U.S., both uh, New England, which is a culture unto itself, mm -hmm. and also the Rocky Mountain West. I lived in Wyoming for several years. Then, Chris, I did I did travel outside the United States, actually to live for two years in Morocco as a as a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. And then I, I guess I would say from then on, my 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 cultural conditioning was more international. But I, I sometimes like to think that I'm not a typical American. But when I look at mm. American values, kind of classic American tendencies and preferences, I have to say I'm I'm pretty American. I can I can transcend that when I need to, but. Uh, I'm kind of a product of where I grew up. Right. I think I think we all are. And I think, I mean, I start most of my workshops and lectures when I with, with stereotypes and I ask the audience, um, and I always ask about, give me some stereotypes about the Americans. And the things that all, always come up is like big um, uh, people are overweight, they eat McDonald's, and they have uh, guns, they, they shoot first and talk later, um, and, and they must be Repu Republican, and et cetera, et cetera. And, These are stereotypes, but and not of them all, are all true. What what makes an American typically American in your in your framework when you say deeply American? Well, well, it's interesting. I a lot of times people ask me, how do you identify the deepest value in a culture? Uh -huh. I, I'll try to answer your question that way. Yeah, and it occurred to me that. The best way to identify the deepest value in any particular culture is to try to identify what behavior bothers people the most in that culture. And there's a good chance that beneath that behavior is a pretty deep cultural value. And so in the United States, I don't think anything bothers Americans more than when somebody acts superior, somebody acts like they're better than somebody else. Because, of course, as you know, egalitarianism, we're all equal, is a huge value in American culture. Our country was founded by people who were escaping a society where where there was a class system and some people were better than others. And so we weren't about to recreate here what we fled England to, to get away from. So I think when I say deeply American, I think uh, being egalitarian, uh, respecting other people no matter no matter what, treating them the same, not not specially, which which uh, is something that Americans find very difficult actually when they work in other cultures where it's very important to respect differences in rank and, and differences in status. Mm -hmm. So what what's deeply American in my view is being very egalitarian. Also being pretty informal, which also gets us into trouble sometimes in other cultures. And relatively speaking, though I'm not sure relative to the Dutch, the Germans maybe, uh, pretty direct in our communication mm -hmm. style. These are three themes that I hammer on when I give workshops because they're, they're oh, oh, and maybe one other before, I know you'll need to cut in and ask another question. We're, inco we're incorrigibly optimistic. We really refuse yes. to look at things the way they are. We insist on looking at things better than they are. Yeah, that's true. If something if something new in the world is happening, then then say continental Europe goes like why, and all the Americans <laughs> all go like why not? Because the glass always tends to be half full rather than half empty. It's always I mean you guys are are masters in general. That is masters at selling fridges to penguins if you want. 
<laughs> because I mean, and, and positive, 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 and positive. Business people to tone it down a little bit. That really, for most of Europe and indeed much of the world, being realistic is a much better approach than being optimistic. Because at the end of the day, how can you trust people who just won't look at things the way they are? Well, I think to that extent, well, that's my personal take on the United States. I've lived there for a year and I've been back many, many times. Um, it's, it's. I think that optimism and uh, the willingness to, to take risk, is, I think, is part of your cultural makeup as well. But that also brings progress. I mean, if you, if you, and I wrote an article about that years ago. If you look at at um, the first country that came into the financial crisis of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Were, were, was the United States. And, and why did you do that? Well, because you were selling what subprime mortgages, etc. But that's risk and you're willing to take that risk until this, this whole bubble booms, bursts and goes. The, the rest of the world falls or follows or falls if you want. But again, also the United States has this profile, this cultural profile. They get, it gets you into a crisis, but it also gets you the, the, the first out of that crisis as well. Because if, yes, if, I think, I think that, um, yeah, one 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 of the things that that optimism gives us, and, and, and is that uh, we feel that we can we can handle any situation, uh, yeah. and so if we get into trouble, we're not we're not fussed. We can get out of trouble. We we probably did what it took to get in trouble in the first place. We also have the means to get out. So I think it. It, it does help us in that respect. By the way, where, where I think that comes from, I, I think your audience might be interested in this, is that the people who came to, the, to, the, to America, they came from uh, a relatively civilized uh, part of the world, Europe, um, mm -hmm. the UK, parts of, parts of continental Europe, and they came to what at the time was a Stone Age wilderness. And effectively, none of their experience prepared them for what they were going to have to do here. And so that's where the idea of risk taking uh, mm -hmm. came up. You know, you didn't wait until the people who knew how to cut down the trees came. You cut down the trees mm -hmm. so you could plant uh, in the spring. And maybe the first tree fell on you. Well, fine. The second one fell further away. And so this need to have to do things, whether we knew how or, or, or even wanted to, we just had to act. We had to take risks. It wasn't like that was plan B. That was the only plan. And so that, that's deep in our culture also, that you just do stuff and see what happens and you can always recover. That's true. I think, I think, Greg, you, you've introduced yourself as being from New England and deeply American. I don't think we've covered the fact that basically you're, um, you're part of my competition. <laughs> you're in the same, same line of business that I am because you're, you would call yourself an interculturalist as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And now, and, uh, so, I mean, we're colleagues to that extent. And, um, I, I, I asked you for this interview, so I'm perfectly fine and okay with that with like-minded people. You said, you mentioned very quickly that uh, being from New England, which is a, hell, a whole different culture in and by itself, or maybe not in and by itself, but has, is a different culture. I've always thought, and this is what I, I preach, quote unquote, to my audience as well, is that, um, of course, people from New York will say uh, we're different from, from California and, and uh, people from LA will say we're different from Texas, et cetera, et cetera. So th there is this, this uh, intra-cultural differences within one country and within the United States as well. But would you agree with me? So it's a bit of a close question. Would you agree with me that the United States is more homogeneous as a culture than it is uh, heterogeneous? Yes, I think uh, I have an interesting story I can tell you about that. Yes, I think that um, whether you're from Vermont, Texas or California, there are certain bedrock 
values, which I kind of alluded to already, that really everybody shares. And, you know, it's interesting, Chris, because I often ask people to do a little activity where they have to identify their their location on some continuums. Are they centralized managers? Are they decentralized? Are they direct or indirect communicators? And Americans, they resist doing this because they think, well, we're individuals. We're not like anybody else. So you can't generalize about us. Mm -hmm. And your one generalization you can make is that all Americans say just that, Mm -hmm. that they, they really hang on to their individualism to such an extent that they they don't resent, but sometimes they react to being typed. But I think if you ask somebody from Vermont, are you okay with taking risk? And you ask, ask somebody from LA, are you okay with taking risk? Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to get a similar answer. Maybe mm-hmm. the Vermonters are a little bit more conservative, maybe Californians are a little bit more crazy, but uh, absolutely, I think there's more ways that we're alike than there are that we're different. Yeah. It's also, I think, with the, the labor mobility, although that has gone down with an X percentage. I mean, for, for, for a few bucks, you would move states. And, that, and that's right, yeah. Americans do, do apparently, the, every American, every home in America changes hands every seven years. Right. Uh, so we are very mobile. I, I was once in the UK traveling from southern England to, up, to, up to Scotland and listening to the, um, the radio, and they were giving the traffic report. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of hours, I realized it was the traffic report for the whole country. <laughs> it wasn't the traffic report for Atlanta or Chicago uh-huh. or San Francisco. And I realized, you know, the difference of living in a huge country like this and, and a small country like the UK. Yeah, that's true. No, it's absolutely true. It's, it's this it happens here as well. Uh, and moving, indeed, moving, um, moving states. What you do is would be moving countries, and then yes. that, that would be difficult for us because I mean, languages change as well. Um, so I was going back to because I pre- I don't prepare too much for for interviews like this. Uh, it's not because I'm lazy, but I just enjoy the uh, uh, the free free flowing chat like that. Um, prior to to uh, clicking record here, we were ha- we were having a chat, and then you mentioned something which which really struck um, um, in my mind right like now is you've mentioned something like demand and need, and the question I had prepared for you is. Why do well, people or companies brush over cultural differences so quickly? Because, and then you talked about, okay, there's, there's, there's an absolute need for this, but the demand, can you rephrase that again for me, please? Yes, well, my point was that certainly in the era of globalization, when nobody anymore just works with people from their same culture, mm-hmm. uh, you'd have to admit that the need for intercultural sensitivity, awareness, knowledge, uh, has grown exponentially, but in my experience as a consultant, uh, a trainer, uh, uh, the, the demand, I don't think, has grown exponentially. And you asked me what I thought the reason was, and I think it's because uh, while the need is out there, people don't necessarily think uh, understand enough about cultural differences to know that, oh, what I need to solve this problem, the, the problems are increasing as the contact increases, the the need for intercultural understanding increases because mistakes are made. But I don't think people necessarily realize that there's a cadre of people out there who who just deal in these issues and would be the solution to their problem. 
So, for example, if I don't get along with Jose in Mexico, yeah. I think, well, this is just an interpersonal difference. We'll, we'll have to work that out. Yeah. If, I knew about, if I knew that cultures differed, then I might think, well, maybe this is personal, but maybe it's something cultural and I should call some guy who knows about that stuff. Yeah. Would you, because, I mean, I, I bump into the exact same thing. They... People do. It's it, people think they do business with people, and in and in and by itself, of course, that's true. But when the Italian is too late again for the meeting for the for the oomph time, they blame the stupid Italian because he this person is stupid, rather than considering like a hang on maybe their their you know uh, preference to pr punctuality is just more flexible than it is for say the German. Um, th that that makes sense, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I often tell people is I do a lot of work, Chris, with U.S. folks dealing with India. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of miscommunications, misinterpretations. And I, I say to the folks listening to, to webinars that I do, you know, uh, if you get upset with Indians when they behave ways you're not expecting, then basically that means you believe they get up every morning thinking, how can we annoy Americans today? <laughs> And that's probably not true. Yeah. That Italian who comes late to the meeting didn't get up this morning thinking, oh, I'm going to be late and really annoy those Dutch people. True. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's the same kind of gums up. I mean, we are, seems to be like we're really like-minded people. And when I come on this subject in my workshops and presentations, I always ask, are there any smokers here? Reluctantly, somebody raises their hand and then he's my victim, so to speak. And I say, well, you know, smoking is bad for you. And of course, everybody knows smoking is bad. And then I say, do you, do you deliberately light up that cigarette to shorten your life? <laughs> and, and then, of course, and then everybody says, no, of course not. But you, so you think something positive comes out of smoking a cigarette. Whether that's true or not, that's not the discussion. But what we do is with the best intentions and not indeed, like you say, to screw the other person. Yeah, that's right. So, it's, well, because you said that we were competitors, you know, I've actually written a book called Culture Matters. Uh, it's a workbook for the Peace Corps. So we have we have the, we have the same name in common. But okay. like you, I don't. I think there's plenty of work to go around, and I, I enjoy talking with colleagues who 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 uh, do the same thing I do. Yeah, and by the way, I mean, at the the litigation society in the United States, you cannot patent a, a book title either. So you're perfectly really? you're perfectly free to do so. And, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you can't patent the book title, so I could just copy your your book title and um, and, and and run off with that. Yes. Um, yeah. So go okay. for it. <laughs> no, I have no intention to. Um, getting getting back to this, I mean, you bump into this. Uh, I bump into this. We both bump into people not knowing. I mean, it's a blind spot. They don't know that they don't know. Correct. Um, how, right. how do you approach this? How, how do you make this clear? Or what would be ways to make this clearer for companies or people working in organizations? Well, you know, it's taken me, what, 35 years, but I don't know, a few years ago, I, I came up with the perfect business case. If, I, if I'm in the room with somebody who's entertaining the idea of using somebody with my skills, I've come up with what I consider the perfect business case. So I, I say to the person, I say, do any of your people work with people from other cultures? And they say yes. Mm -hmm. And then I say, do they understand the people in those cultures? And they say, well, not necessarily. And then I say, do you think the fact that they don't understand people in those cultures has any consequences? And they say, oh, yes. And then I say, well, then you need me. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if your question is what you do when you get in front of those people or how do you get in front of them in the first place. But if I can have a phone call or an interview 
that's kind of my my paradigm for for starting the conversation. I uh, know. My first my my question is more related. Uh, how do you get them to understand that culture is an issue? I was uh, there is. I am a Dutchman myself. I live in Belgium. There is a um, uh, there's not a great deal of affection between the Belgians and the Dutch. Uh, there's a great deal of affection from the Dutch to the Belgians because the Dutch think that the Belgians are have a sweet accent. We share the same language um, and we share a border, etc. But from a cultural perspective, there are no two countries that are culturally more different um, than the Netherlands and Belgium, two countries that share a border and uh, and the language. Think of the United States and Canada or the, the right. English-speaking Canadians or the Austrians and the Germans, for instance, share a border, share a language, and ha are have more in common than they differ. Well, it's it's 100% the other side, uh, contrary to um, the Dutch and the Belgians. And I was speaking to last week to a... Uh, uh, a guy, a person who worked in a Dutch company who wanted to also um, do business in Belgium. It is it is doomed to fail because the Dutch the Dutch are too direct. They have no respect for hierarchy. Um, uh, everybody should just act normal because as you act is already funny enough. And the Belgians just dislike it to the bone. And I was saying to this person, you know, read this article, at least read this article, and then you have an idea of where these cultural differences are. And yeah, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. And I see another one bites the dust. I mean, I see Freddie Mercury singing this song again. It's, um, <laughs> it's Well, um, I, I, the only thing I can think of is to try to give specific examples where, where assuming sameness uh, uh, where it wasn't the case, where it actually had a significant business uh, consequence. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think maybe if you tell enough stories, I mean, if, if the starting point is we're really very similar, then you may have to tell more stories. But I don't know that anything other than examples um, would would alert people to the potential. Once they see the once they, if they accept the example, then you can go beneath and say, you know, this is why this didn't work out. Here's an example of something that went completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's the part culture played in that. And if they buy the example, then they're certainly going to listen to the explanation of the part culture played. Maybe they will accept it as a significant part or not. But if they buy the example, then you, you sort of have them where you want them. And then you just say, you know, part of what went wrong here is that you guys think this way and we think that way. And that if that's the case, this is the consequence you're going to get. You know, do you want those consequences? Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting one. And that's, yeah, kids can't do this, but adults should be able to do this. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, you talked about doing uh, webinars or business, at least, between the United States and India. I have a particular interest in both because I live in the States and my daughter is half Indian. Um, and so what would you pick or identify as being the biggest cultural differences between Americans or the United States and Indians? Or would you also differentiate um, or would you consider uh, India also being a quite a homogeneous country? Culturally, well, culturally. Sure, I mean, India probably is more culturally diverse than almost any country on earth. But even even so, there are certain bedrock cultural assumptions that northern Indians share with southerners and Sikhs with 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 the, the Hindus. Indians, and yes, um, yeah. In my experience, uh, as far as U.S. Indian cultural difference, the the, the thing that causes the most understand misunderstandings, and it causes a series of them, but the the root difference. It is the respect for hierarchy in Indian culture, which effectively means Indians won't talk to bosses 
the way they need to for an American boss to understand. So, for example, Indians are reluctant to disagree with something a, a manager might say in a meeting or even on a conference call where the, you know, the folks are in the U.S. and there's a team in India. They would write an email afterwards clarifying something, but at the expense of avoiding a confrontation, an unpleasant situation, they often agree to things in meetings that actually they wouldn't have done if it had been one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. And the, the sensitivity with which direct reports have to deal with their seniors uh, results in all sorts of uh, uh, direct, indirect, tactful, diplomatic things Indians say, which... Mm -hmm which uh, are just too indirect for Americans. They have to be more direct. You know, for example, if Indians are going to miss a deadline, you know, their way of communicating to an American that they're going to miss a deadline is, oh, is that still your deadline? Now, to an American, that sounds like a question. So right. we answer it. But actually, it's an Indian way of saying, I hope not, because it isn't actually our deadline, still our deadline. And multiply that by a number of different examples. And I think the core issue is the, is the respect for hierarchy, uh, but it results in such polite communication that effectively it takes the form of be being too indirect. But the core issue is the need to be tactful and diplomatic. Mm -hmm. True, true, true. Is there, I, was, I went once into um, India for Deloitte, yeah. and at the end I asked the Indians, I said, what do you guys think of the word no? And they said, oh, sir, no is very rough. I said, okay, what do you say instead? And they said, oh, we usually say yes. I said, ah, and you think Americans understand that? <laughs> so that was just an example. Of course, the Indian yes just means we're listening. It doesn't mean we agree. But Americans hear yes, and they think they got a commitment. Yes, uh, that's 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 so true, and I've, I've I've bumped into so many examples of this. I mean, in in my private life as well, being uh, being married or having been married to a to an Indian as well. Um, it, how do you is is this this is probably how you explain this? Do you offer any tips um, to the to the to the Americans and to the Indians? Because I I I guess it's it's easier for to say to an American you have to be less direct, but it's it, you can say to an Indian you have to be more direct. But I think that's so difficult for them. Yes, that's a very good point. And I used my my strategy with Indians used to be you, know, you got to be more direct. And then I realized, well, first of all, they think what they're doing is direct yeah. because it, it is Indian style. And so over over the years, what I what what's occurred to me to add is that I I've experienced. I'm sure you have also, Chris, that two Indians at the same level, two mm -hmm. peers, can be just as direct as as any, anybody in any culture. Yeah. Uh, it's only when they're communicating with somebody at a higher level that they adopt this careful mode. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to saying be more direct, I say, you know, talk to your American boss, your American manager, your American team lead, the way you would talk to a peer. Now, I know in Indian culture you'd never do that with a senior person, but you know how to be that direct. And you just must believe me when I say mm. that that level of directness is not considered rude, inappropriate, or disrespectful in American culture. So then, I mean, it, it's still outside their comfort zone to be sure. Yeah. But they know what you mean by be more direct. Yeah. And what do you what do you say to what what do you say to the Americans? Oh, to the Americans, I tell them to tell the Indians to talk to them the way they talk to their peers. Right. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I say to the Americans, certainly encourage them to be more direct. And usually we're talking about a specific example. And I would tell the Americans, you know, tell your Indian colleagues, if you if you say you're going to miss a deadline that way, I'll never understand this. 
you know, I need to understand you, you want me to understand you. Is it possible for you to talk to me the way you would talk to a peer? True. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, India root differ. Yeah, the root causes are hierarchical differences. Now, I, I am. I'm not asking the question yet, but I will ask the question in the end. Uh, how can you become more culturally competent? I ask this question to all my guests, and many of my guests come back with the uh, the one of the tips would be to travel. Now, this is a segue into your writing because you've you've written a plethora plethora of books. Really, how many have you published? I think maybe eight or nine, Chris. My goodness. All right. Okay. Um, that's a lot. And what your last book is called Why Travel Matters. Now, can you tell us a little bit about that book? What What's it about, please? Sure. Um, you know, everybody who's ever talked about travel, uh -huh. one thing everybody says is that travel broadens your perspective. It, yes. it changes your your uh, awareness. It broadens your horizons. Mm -hmm. And wanted to explore in the book is, okay, we all realize that. We all realize we don't come back the same person we left. But how does that happen? What are the mechanisms by which somebody does end up having their perspective deepened, their horizons broadened? And then in the book, uh, I have three kind of main parts to the book. The effects of travel on your sense, uh, sorry, the effects of going to another place, mm -hmm. how that affects the individual. Uh, the effects of dealing with people who behave differently from you, which of course you encounter all the time, how that changes the individual. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the last um, chapter there is how does being in, in contact with people who have a completely different mindset, who think differently, how does that change you? And so the book explores the, the, the effects of encountering a different place, a different people, and a different mentality. And then I describe how that how that inevitably makes you, first of all, look at your own place, your own behavior, and your own mentality, mm -hmm. which of course is thrown into great contrast when you when you go overseas and you begin to understand yourself better and you begin to understand others better. You know, at the end of the day, we're all products of our experience. You change the experience, you change the product. Mm -hmm. And I think nothing offers a greater amount of new experience than, than travel. I don't think there's anything else which can compare with travel in terms of the exposure to new experience. And if, if we are the product of our experience, then the new experience changes us in a way that uh, travel changes us in a way that almost nothing else can. Yeah. Now, I, I have a cousin years ago, uh, and he's about my age, uh, in his 50s he is, but years ago he went to um, the Dominican Republic, La República Dominicana, and he went to on an all-inclusive tour. I've been to the Dominican Republic twice, and I took the bus from the south, from Santo Domingo to Puerto Plata in, uh, in, in the north. Um, would you call that being a more engaged traveler? Because that's something you refer to in your book as well. Is is my my cousin a non-engaged traveler, and am I the engaged traveler, or how can you become a more engaged traveler? Well, I do um, I do make a fairly sharp distinction in the book between a tourist and, and a traveler. Yes. I don't think it's not. I don't think it's impossible to be changed by the experience if you're a tourist. Of course, you're going to be exposed certainly to the place and maybe to the people. Um, I think the way to be an engaged traveler, the point being that if you are, you're probably going to be changed more than if you're a tourist, 
It's just to be be with the locals, uh, not with a group from your country who are being uh, led around by a local, but you're on a bus with a bunch of locals. You you eat in restaurants, not that just where the tour group buses stop, but where the locals eat. You uh, and, and if you if you want to uh, understand. Uh, uh, the behavior. If, if you want to be exposed to different behaviors, you need to be exposed to the people who manifest those behaviors. So, uh, one of I, my last chapters is a list of eleven tips, and one of the tips is to is to uh, travel slowly. You know, spend three hours in a cafe, not just as long as it takes to drink your coffee. Mm. In three hours, you'll see a lot of things. You'll see people coming and leaving. You'll see people interacting. You'll you'll learn a lot. If you're at a restaurant across the street from a Casbah uh, in Morocco, you know, stay three hours in that restaurant. Watch what happens around that Casbah at nine o'clock, at ten o'clock, at eleven o'clock. So, so take your time. You can see the sights. There's no reason you can't see the sights and still be a, a traveler. But um, just just put yourself in the path of the locals if, mm-hmm. if you want to be exposed to local behavior. Yeah, I very much agree with that, and I've I've done that myself. Um, and can, can I share a story from my site, even though you're the guest, Greg? <laughs> please, please do. Oh, you, can, you can answer the phone call in the meantime if you want. No, I'm not going to. Sorry. <laughs> this happened to me in um, a couple of years ago when I was in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, and there were, I was at a flea market where I saw something that interested me, uh, like a little uh, souvenir thing. And so I haggled over the price. We settled for an X amount of money. And I asked him, how long does this take to make you to, to, to make this? Because this would be handmade on the spot. Um, and uh, he said, well, it's about 15 minutes or so. I said, well, okay, that's fine. That's perfectly fine. So I went back to my car, got my, a can of Coke that was in my car. And uh, I went back and I, sit, I, sat next, I sat myself next to him. It didn't take 15 minutes. It took him 45 minutes. And eventually he asked, you know, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, originally. He said, usually tourists, you know, they, they don't stick around. They, they want to rush and rush and rush. And I just had a very interesting conversation with this, with this guy. And it didn't take 15 minutes. It took only 45 minutes. <laughs> I, I, for me, that was a very enriching experience because typically in the Western world or individualistic cultures, I think we are just rush, 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 rush. I have to see the Eiffel Tower. I have to see the Louvre. I have to see, I don't know, whatever you have to see. That's right, yeah. So, well, what, my first tip uh, in the chapter on how to travel is is to travel alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because you're, you're uh, antisocial, but you know, if you travel with a, with, even with a spouse or with a companion, you know, there's always one person between you and the local culture. Yeah. You know, if you travel with somebody yeah. else, they're going, to, they're going to sit next to you on the bus. So you're not going to sit next to a Moroccan or a Zambian. You know, at a restaurant, you're going to be at the same table, and anybody who wants to approach you has to approach two, two Dutch people in conversation. Correct. If you're sitting there alone, somebody might come up and start talking to you. Now, of course, there's all sorts of reasons why you'd want to travel with your spouse, with your family. But if you've got a choice, mm-hmm. you're going to have more exposure to the local culture if you're there by yourself. Yeah, true. Very true. Um, so travel, why travel? I fully understand. And I think the audience will, will definitely understand uh, and that tip as well in terms of traveling alone. But what if you don't have the money to travel? What's the next best, best thing you can do? Well, I would say, you know, there's, there's a whole literature, it's called travel literature. There, there are books about, about the experience of traveling in a country. They're not guidebooks, but mm-hmm. they're, 
their book, their their descriptions of the experiences that the person had mm-hmm. uh, in in the other culture, and so you didn't have that experience, but you're reading about it. You're, you're traveling vicariously. Another thing is you can't afford. Greg, Greg you're, you're, there's something on your mic. There, uh, your um, there's something rubbing against your mic. I think it's could it be a, a piece of cloth or something? Uh, well, I'm not sure where my mic is, but is this any better? This or? is better. Yeah, now it's back to normal. Okay. Yes. Maybe it was my hands. Um, the other thing I would say uh, is um, if you don't have the money to travel uh, uh, extensively, uh-huh. you, you might have enough money to go to the next country. Uh, if you're an American, go to Canada or go to Mexico. Certainly in Europe, you can you can, you can do that. Yes. You wouldn't be exposed to a culture completely different from your own, but, but certainly at, at, at limited cost, you would you would be in a place where maybe you don't speak the language and where, where the culture is is different. So do it um, do it that way, or, or read some of these great travel uh, travel um, experience books. Good point. All right. Well, uh, I'm so sorry because I thought. A, <laughs> well, you're you're more popular than I am uh, because nobody calls me. So it is now turned off. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. sorry. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, it's um it's a good segue to actually uh, go towards the uh, the last the, the, the one but last question. Um, can you give us maybe three additional more tips to become more culturally competent from your own long experience? Yeah, I would say one thing is talk. Sorry, listen more than you talk. Uh, you know, you 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 don't learn so much when you're talking. There's always a chance you learn something when you're when you're listening or or asking questions. I find when I meet somebody from another culture, I'm kind of famous for this. I ask a lot of questions about their culture to the extent that people say, "Why are you asking me so many questions?" But it's probably in my nature and, and because of what I do. So you know, ask questions, listen more than than you talk. Yes. Um, don't assume when you're in a situation. Uh, don't assume you understand what's going on. You you may understand, but you might want to ask questions, or you might want to say to the person, uh, "I'm interpreting what you've said to mean this. Did I get that correct?" Mm-hmm. This would be, I think, especially in a maybe business or workplace context. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I would say, I said it earlier in in the interview uh, this morning, is. Um, you know, always assume goodwill. When you're in a situation, people have done something that really does annoy, confuse, or frustrate you. You know, chances are they didn't get up this morning thinking, oh, how can I annoy, confuse, and frustrate that American today? So if you assume goodwill, then you step back when these annoying, frustrating things happen, and you realize, you know, maybe I don't understand what's going on here. Or, or you're forced to conclude this is just an annoying person. There are real annoying they people are. out They're... there, but not as many as you probably think. Okay, good point. All right, excellent tips here. Listen more than you talk, ask a lot of questions. Don't assume you understand the uh, the situation or what's going on. And always assume that people are doing whatever they're doing with uh, the best intentions. Greg, it's been a great pleasure to, uh, to talk to you. Um, can you uh, let us know if people want to get in touch with you, how they can do that? Uh, sure, thank you. Uh, my email is Craig, C-R-A-I-G, at Craig Storty, C-R-A-I-G-S-T-O-R-T-I dot com. Okay. And I do have a website, which is CraigStorty.com. All right, great. That'll be in the show notes as well, a link to the um, Amazon page that uh, you can find all Greg's books. Great. Greg's, thanks a lot again. Fantastic talk. Um, I really enjoyed this, and I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. I hope so. It's been my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers.
Thanks, Greg, again. I really enjoyed this talk. Um, if you have not subscribed to this podcast, you can do that. Please visit iTunes and you can leave a review as well. In addition to that, you can get this podcast in Stitcher and Spotify um, recently as well. So all these episodes can be found in Spotify as well, if that would be your preference or preferred way of listening. The music is from Ben Sound. Check it out at bensound.com. I am Chris Smith, and this was the Culture Matter Podcast. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. Bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.